Well, good morning, friends. I, I can call you friends. We've been here a few times now, and we really, my wife and I, enjoy coming to Calvary Baptist Church and gotten to know a handful, and I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, as uh, I was thinking about this subject, it's odd, cursed for us, I mean, as a title. It's really what this passage is about and, and the work that the Lord did for us. But there's a story that I want to share first to help set this up. It's a true story. Uh, my wife and I have been blessed with six grandchildren. We have three children of our own, uh, daughters the oldest, and then twin sons. The twin sons are 41, so and daughters older, so just to give you some idea on that. Anyway, our, uh, our daughter uh, gave us our first grandson. They were living in Chicago in those days and then uh, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, there were some complications with the first birth, and so after that, her other three children had to be delivered C-section. Hard for her, the upside for us was there was a day when the baby was going to be born because they scheduled a date. You know, well, we live in Grand Rapids, so I would schedule vacation. We would drive down to Charlotte. That was the plan take care of uh, our toddler uh, grandson. Well, mom and dad went off to the hospital and the next one was delivered and that worked really good. So then when number th three was on the way, a little girl, we did the same thing, scheduled vacation and we'll go to Charlotte, take care of the two toddlers while they go and have the third baby. Well, little girls have their own thoughts. And so we're driving down to Charlotte, maybe half, three quarters of the way there, phone rings, Son-in-law called Kath, we're at the hospital, and uh, baby's already on the way, you know, and they've made other arrangements for the two grandsons. So we get, uh, he says, come right to the hospital instead of the house. So we did, drove right to the hospital and met our new granddaughter, and, and what a blessing, mom and baby were fine. And then along, they, they had arranged for a couple of friends to bring the two toddlers over, because then we were going to take them home when we were done there. So you got these two little toddler boys who have no idea that mom just had major surgery, you know, a handful of hours ago, and she's not doing the best. I mean, she's doing well for what she had, but still. But she's over there trying to love her two little boys who are being little boys. And, and then you got this new little granddaughter and my wife. Uh, she's, uh, after everything, we took a bunch of pictures, all that stuff. So I'm kind of sitting off on the side. My wife's got this little baby in her arm, and there's a glow that she has for her grandkids, for her own, but for her grandkids, very special. And so I'm watching all of this and the, my daughter trying to love on her little boys and all that. And then it's strangely, so during these happy moments that it hit me, Lord, do you mean to say that this little bundle of joy, joy is her middle name, do you mean to say that this little bundle of joy is a sinner and is under the curse like the rest of us. How can this be? I'm not unaware of the fact that many theologians uh, hold that a child before the age of accountability will go straight into the arms of Jesus should they die. And we, we hold to that. This is a doctrine, though, that's developed more from the implications of Scripture than for direct, from direct statements. But here's the thing. Scripture states that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We are, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. And we, outside of Christ, have no hope and are without God in the world, Ephesians 
in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, he carefully and completely crushes any self-righteousness, any sense of self-effort. We're totally depraved. That's our default condition. My little bundle of joy is totally depraved, and she's hours old. Amazing. We're not sinners because of what we do, but because of what we are. Because of what we are, we sin. We're shot through with sin. The stuff we're made out of is under the curse. Ephesians 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You were born dead spiritually. And because people are spiritually dead outside of Christ, as one theologian put it, our job is to get the word of God to their ears, and then it's the Spirit's job to get the word of God from their ears to their heart. We share the word, the Spirit applies the word. So as I've been thinking about this, uh, this passage, I've done some work on it in the past, and it's one of those that I put down and then it it just wouldn't leave me alone, and it's like, okay, I've got to work on a message for this. And when uh, Dave reached out to me regarding coming today, this came to mind, so I pulled it out and went back to work, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us today regarding the curse that Christ took for us, the sinless Son of a holy God became sin for us. And so we want to look at that. Let me read our passage again here in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And then we'll try to take it apart a little bit. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. An incredible portion of Scripture here that the Spirit gives us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Now, this book of Galatians, just quickly, uh, most commentators would say it's the first epistle that Paul wrote maybe A.D. 49. And part of the reasons, in Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council. You remember they were trying to decide, uh, do the Gentiles need to keep the law as a part of their uh, walk with the Lord? And the Jerusalem Council uh, came to conclusions that, no, they don't. We shouldn't put that. We can't keep the law. Let's not put the burden on the Gentiles. They made that decision, but it's not mentioned in this book. So it seems, and Paul is battling the Judaizers, those who would say, 
Uh, part of your righteousness, part of your walk with the Lord is keeping rules, keeping the law, if you want to be uh, in uh, harmony with the Lord. And Paul says, no, as a matter of fact, if we look quickly in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the, the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this. Even if we, he's, he's talking in the third person, so he's talking about himself. Even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. That is anathema, that is damned. Paul is breathing fire here is what one theologian says. He, he has no tolerance for distorting the gospel. And that's what Galatians, he's battling, he's pushing back hard against the Judaizers, that keeping the law or keeping a list of rules that somehow our righteousness can be achieved when in fact it's utterly and completely the righteousness of Christ and the curse that he took for us that paid our penalty for sin. That's what we want to look at here as, uh, as we dissect this a little bit now. So in verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, He's, he, he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Uh, he's, he's trying to show that even from the beginning, there's, when, when, when Moses came down with, the, with the, uh, the, the tablets from the mountain, he had uh, the Ten Commandments. And then there's the fuller giving of the law. And then in Deuteronomy, he, he restates the law as one of the final act of Moses. And even in that, you will not be able to keep this law. Impossible. You cannot keep this law. James says in 2.10, whoever keeps the whole of the law yet stumbles in one point has been guilty of all. We're shot through with sin. We cannot keep the law. Even from day one. So the right, our righteousness was never going to be through the law. Verse 11. No one is justified by the law before God. Uh, that, that no one is justified before God is evident. He says it's, it's apparent. And he quotes uh, Old Testament here. He quotes uh, Habakkuk uh, 2.4. The righteous man will live by faith. If you have New King James, it says the just will live by faith. The just. To be justified before God, to be in line with his righteous will, is to be righteous. Declared righteous because you're justified, but to be declared justified is solely on the basis of the work of Christ, not our rule keeping because as we said, we can't keep it. We can't. We're good at this. We fail at that. Our motives are impure. And on and on and on, we're shot through with sin. And no one is justified by the law. So it comes down to a heart attitude. So you think of the parable. It's in Luke 18. There's a parable uh, that Jesus tells. And he mentions the, uh, the, the Pharisee. And then he mentions the tax collector and the Pharisee is, I thank thee that I'm not like other men and like this tax collector over here, a sinner, and he extols how wonderful he is. And then the tax collector in verse 13, chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 13, but the tax collector, standing at, standing at some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That awareness that I can't do this. My only hope is you. And so he cries out for mercy in that parable. That's what he's talking about uh, here, that no one can be justified. There is no such thing in Scripture of self-justification, though we do it all the time. So in verse 12 then, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. And then the upshot of all of these, these first verses that we've looked at is that men and women cannot keep the uh, Old Testament law perfectly, period. Our only hope is the mercy of God, that he will have mercy on us and open an avenue so that we can come into relationship with him. From the beginning, it's been so. How is he going to do it? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us, that is, he bought us back from slavery to sin, as I said at the beginning, even with my little... I love this little girl. Of course, she's getting all grown up now. But uh, even then, the realization that the curse is on all of us. Back there in the garden, when the Lord cursed the serpent, then he put a curse on the woman, then he cursed the man, and then he cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your, earn your bread. And so the, the entire creation is cursed. And the upshot of that is, all of our children are born under the curse. And we see this. Have, now, I'm no expert. I think my wife is. Many of you ladies are. You, you watch a baby cry, you know, and I'll, I'll listen to my wife. Boy, that baby's really angry, mad. You know, that's an angry cry. Well, I don't know how you know that. I'm not, I'm not good at that. But the point is, you didn't have to teach that little infant who's only a few weeks old to be angry. Learned it all on its own because we're shot through with sin from birth. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The price is paid. And in this case, it's the very lifeblood of Christ that was the payment for our sin. Peter talks about this in chapter 1 of Peter after telling us in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. He goes on and he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a land unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This isn't chump change. See, in heaven, he says, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Well, in heaven, that's what we walk on. That's asphalt. Streets of gold, yeah, we walk on that stuff. 
That wasn't good enough for redemption's cost. Redemption cost is the precious blood of a land unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the God-man, who did keep that law perfectly, who never had a lustful thought, who never had pride enter his mind, and, and all of the things that we struggle with. And he conquered all of it in the face of incredible temptation. The temptation of Satan was very real. And he overcame it all. And he did it for us. The curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse. From the curse of the law. Uh, Back up in verse 10, as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. And Christ redeemed us from that curse. Look at... uh, there in, uh, down in verse 22 of the same chapter. But, under, but the scripture has shut up everyone under, this, under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law became our tutor. It pointed us to our need for the mercy of God because we can't do it. And our only hope is Him. He, he, he talks about this in, uh, in verse 14 here in our text. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham. Go over to, uh, uh, in chapter 3 here, look at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. So now back to verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing where God accepted his faith, Abraham believed God, took him at his word, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And so we too, when we come to him in faith, fall under that same blessing that Abraham uh, experienced in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that acceptance by the Lord, declared as righteous, might come to the Gentiles so we would receive the, spirit, the promise of the Spirit through faith. That receive the promise of the Spirit. You remember Pentecost. So those early believers, Jesus ascends to heaven. You go back and you wait. And not, in many, in not too many days, the Spirit's going to come. But he hasn't come yet. And then... That day comes when, when the Spirit comes and it's overwhelming when it does because now they're out preaching and people, all these different dia- languages and dialects are hearing them in their own tongue and it's amazing what the, what the Spirit has done uh, 
to the church. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, in Him you also, us, in Him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, look it, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And at that moment of salvation, you were gifted with the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you're one of His, you have Him within you. He's yours. Oh, and He doesn't take up residence and then decide to move out. When God says, mine, of a person, you're His forever. And the Spirit is there. And He's with you. And He's in you. And He will ultimately take you home to be with the Lord. We are justified by faith, Galatians 3, 1-12. Our justification, our right standing, our decla- the declaration, not guilty, is by faith in the work of Christ, verse 1-12. through 12. We're redeemed from the curse, verse 13 and 14, because that is the linchpin, the curse that is on us. And so now I want to, if we can, we'll zero in on that just a little bit for a few minutes here on that curse. And for that, I want to use uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're going to put that up on the screen here. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Him who knew no sin to become sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we got to be careful here. There are those who teach that Jesus Christ literally became sinful when He took on the sin of men and women. We don't believe that. Jesus Christ is holy God, second person of the Trinity, God, man, utterly sinless, holy, uh, pure in all ways, omnipotent God. Yet, He so took on our sin, I'm going to throw a word out here, imputation, imputation. God took our sin, if you will, and credited it to Christ, gave it to Christ. Then he took his righteousness and he credited it to us, gave it to us, so that Christ carried our sin and took on the penalty of that sin, including the divine anathema, the damnation of the Father, and yet at the same time in his person is utterly sinless and holy. But took on that wrath, just like, and just like for you and I, he takes the righteousness of Christ and gives that to us. But I have to ask, and don't answer, but in your own heart, do you live an utterly righteous, pure, and holy life all the time? We don't, if we're honest. Uh, we sin daily, if not hourly, momentarily. We're shot through with sin. So what's going on? This idea of the imputation, and one other, one other distinction I want to make here a moment. 
Um, there are those, and, and I'm going to use another word, but I think it's, I think it's important because we're impacted by this all the time. There are those who use the word imparted righteousness. There's imputed righteousness, which we would hold to. Then imparted righteousness. In other words, when, when you come to, to uh, Christ in faith, you are made righteous. Literally, 100% holy at that moment. Of course, then you need to maintain confession with a priest who will intercede for you so that you can maintain that holiness. And you might have to do some indulgences and some other things to keep that holiness. That's not what Scripture teaches. It takes our sin, imputes it to Christ, He carries it, and gives us His righteousness declared not guilty. Not because I no longer sin, but because Christ never sinned. And the Father looks at us, and when he sees the righteousness of Christ, it's just as if I've never sinned. Because he sees the righteousness of Christ. The Reformers talked about this as, at the same time, just and sinner. At the same time we're justified, we're sinners. Now we believe in sanctification, right? We're, be, we're being made holy. But that's a lifelong process. And that process won't end until we see him face to face. And then we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So we have the imputed righteousness to our account and our imputed sin to Christ's account. And he carries it to the cross and the Father punishes him for our sin. And I can't get past this just as if we never sinned. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But sometimes we can get stuck in our life as believers not living out that truth just as if I'd never sinned because we struggle with the sin and there's, we, feel, we feel that how can I possibly be forgiven? By his doing... 1 Corinthians 1, I don't have a slide for this. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, by His doing, that is, by the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He, Christ became wisdom to us from God, righteousness, sanctification, Redemption, righteousness, Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my sanctification, and certainly Christ is my redemption, because I can't pay that price. Either, either we will pay the penalty ourselves, which is eternity in hell, because you can't, you can't pay that debt, or we'll accept uh, the righteousness that Christ gives us and live in light of that and become like him. And Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. And Paul concludes that verse, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's an amazing, amazing truth that the sinless Son of God was cursed by the Father 
for us. We'll talk about that a little more here in a second. I want to uh, bring in some application points so that we can zero in a little bit here. So my first one is a question. Are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone? That is, the death, burial, resurrection, the righteous life that Christ lived. Are you trusting in Christ and His work alone for the salvation of your soul? Many here, I'm sure. There may be some here or maybe online that watch this. You've never done that. You've never, you've never considered that you need any help, but actually we need the righteousness of Christ. We're justified or declared righteous before God through faith alone. There's an old hymn. We don't sing it a whole lot anymore, but remember Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There's nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation or to my justification or to my righteousness. It's all the righteousness of Christ. Are you trusting in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul? Number two, how often do you reflect on the price that Jesus paid for your sin and mind? I think, and I could be wrong on this, but I think in practice, uh, Calvary is probably very similar to North Park where we're from, and we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month. Is that typical, John? Pastor John? Yeah. And that's, you know, and we do that to remember the Lord and to remember, because do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so it's, it's a good practice. Our daughter there in uh, North Carolina, their church practices communion every Sunday. Um, here's, here's my uh, word or plea for all of us. We do that, and it's part of what we do, and let's keep doing it. But be mindful. This is not just a, an item of church order, you know, like, well, we got that done on the first Sunday, check. But literally, the Son of God was cursed for me. And He died, and He experienced suffering and thank God he was resurrected on the third day. So go back to that day. He's on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. And he's being heckled. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the, the hecklers are there and standing right down here in front of him is his mother and the women. And John is standing there with her. And he's suffering. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he's cursed. And the Father damns him for your sin, for mine. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This death thing, Jesus had never experienced that either. This is the human Christ pleading with his Father into your hands. I'm trusting you. I commit my spirit. 
Then there's that word, tetelestai. It's finished. And he died. And it got dark for three hours. And the whole creation is shaking because the creative agent, Jesus the Christ, is dead. Then, three days later, <laughs> this is the best part, right? <laughs> that stone rolled away, and out comes the resurrected Christ. The Father accepted the sacrifice. Praise God. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he accepted that sacrifice and the, the, the curse, the damnation that Christ experienced on our behalf is now available to all of his people until he comes again. When he's done and all that are to be his have been, been gathered in, then he will come back and we'll see him as he is. And all that sin that we struggle with will be gone, and we'll be like him. So that brings me to number three here then. If we've come to faith in Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, if we come to faith in him, the death of Jesus Christ is the only satisfaction before God we need. We need to hear that again. If we've come to him in faith... I'm trusting totally in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He took my curse. Then the death of Jesus Christ is the only satisfaction before God we need. I don't have to try to buy points with the Lord. Because I'll never do it. On my best day, he's utterly unimpressed with my best efforts as far as buying points with God. I can't do it. I have to rely totally on his work. Now, I want to do my best work then to please him and satisfy him and to worship him and to glorify him and in some small way say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life. But that's the different motivation than somehow I've got to cut myself or crawl over broken glass so that somehow God will, th will realize that I'm really, really sorry. The price has been paid. And he's the only satisfaction you will ever, ever need. Praise God for the Lamb of God.